welcome to Talent Savvy, the podcast that inspires you on all things talent. In today's episode, we will be talking about strategic HR and TA metrics, the metrics to use to influence strategic C-level leadership. Which metrics can you use for those? Which metrics shouldn't you use? How do you use them? And what successes have I and my co-hosts who have been working at both corporate as well as scale-up TA been successful with. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Talent Savvy, the podcast that inspires you on all things talent. My name is Bas van der Haatert and today I'm joined from Barcelona by Olga Schmelova. Close enough? Not really. All right. And Matthias Smeiser from Germany. And Matthias, you're new to the podcast, one of our new co-hosts. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners yeah no uh, 100% thank you for having me yeah my name is Matthias I have been in the recruitment scene for a while literally one of the favorite positions that people might know in companies that might know is Salando Scout have been on the as I call it the, sometimes the dark side of talent acquisition in talent technology as well myself and now just recently I um, started with Emnifying as a global director of talent acquisition so I've been in the game for 10 plus years and have um, yeah five plus years in talent leadership right now and have been heavily also involved in communities like the TA lab um, back in the days, but also in other communities uh, that are Berlin focused. Yeah. And you're Berlin based, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. And what what does uh, MFI do just for our listeners to get an ID? Sure. It's a B2B SaaS company, Internet of Things. So it's actually building networks that connect hardware um, devices uh, with each other. And that is um, really, really interesting because this company is 120 people strong and is now really getting their uh, second in, um, uh, invent, uh, investment uh, in venture capital to really scale the organization further. And the network they are building is stronger and more secure than most of the networks that you know of um, from your telecom providers. All right, really cool. And so today's topic is going to be about HR metrics and strategic HR metrics. And the reason I love having the both of you on here is because Olga is, of course, more of a corporate TA leader, formerly PepsiCo, now Nielsen IQ, traditional, big, strong companies, while Matthias is way more in the scale-up world of new technology. And I'm really curious to see how the both of you look to strategic HR and TA metrics because of the different companies and if we love other metrics and if we are successful with other metrics a lot. And that's why I love having the both of you on here. So the article, which is the basis of our discussion today, is one which was published originally by Dr. John Sullivan. I'm a big fan of his work. Visor republished it and they said the top 10 HR metrics to check which your CEO loved. And just to summarize them quickly, one is revenue per employee. The second one is the improvement of the performance of new hire. So the quality of hire improvement. Um, They're talking about the performance turnover in key jobs, which they say is um, you should not just look at the key job turnover, but actually make performance part of that and be less unhappy about low performance people and and put a bigger weight on the high performers who are leaving. The dollars of revenue lost 
due to positions of open in days, a metric covering the current hot talent problem in your firm. They say another important one is a contribution to productivity to identify where HR programs helped increase it. The seventh one is the percentage of HR strategic goals that were met, the new higher failure rate, and they describe it as being uh, people who are terminated or asked to leave between uh, six uh, or in the first six or 12 months afterwards, the number of applications per employee, and the diversity hires in customer impact positions. Those were the 10 metrics Pfizer was talking about you should be tracking and reporting to because senior staff and they are talking at C-level is really interested to them. I'm really curious, Olga, I start with you. Uh, We've all read the article. Which ones do you think are most important? Which ones were you like, oh, um, I should be reporting those or I've actually had a big success in reporting those to my senior management? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Fas. I think for me, the most, the one that stood out the most was about the dollars of revenue loss per production uh, for the vacancy day. So I don't think we often see it as, okay, the person quits and how much money we're losing every day that the role is not filled. So this metric and, and actually bringing this number to to the plate opens up a lot also on as well as TA performance, but also performance and engagement of hiring managers. When we don't fill the position quickly enough, we keep losing the, the money. I don't think that's ever seen that way. It's like, okay, we can open position. We're going to be hiring for ages. Hiring managers are not taking responsibility of replying quickly, interviewing, etc. So by giving this number, I think it gives a very different perspective of how valuable our work is. So if we don't fill the position on time, if we don't bring quality candidates quickly enough, the company is losing money. I don't necessarily think TA is always seen as that strategic and actually connecting straight away to the profit and, and the revenue that the company does. So for me, this was something quite important that we should be really looking at and uh, positioning out there. Absolutely. Matthias, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. One of the things that I just recently had in a conversation is if you think about going with a candidate and, you know, you hire from big, bigger enterprise where in Germany sometimes this is three to six months um, before they can actually start in your organization um, uh, towards then, oh, should we continue? And if we are unsure, um, should we actually go with that candidate or spend some more time and get maybe someone from a not so big organization that might kind of start in one or two months is a big difference and turnaround than in the hiring decision in that sense. So I can totally agree with that. And also on that far point when we all know it sometimes, there are uh, positions that have birthdays, right? And so really, you know, making sure and asking the business from a business partner perspective of, hey, do you really need that role? Like you have looked for this role for a year now, you know, maybe we don't even need this anymore and maybe we can promote somebody else. So not just think about hiring, but think about internal talent, think about what what is the issue here. I have another call right after this podcast where we talk about a hiring manager that has a unicorn definition of what they're looking for, uh, the purple squirrel, right? And, and again, like 
does that make sense? Do you know what you're talking about? Are you fishing here? Like, you know, this is why we're not filling roles. So put this into perspective always helps. Yeah, and it also, as far as I'm concerned, if you're able to do this, you need to do it by type of role or, or uh, by, by department. And what I love, if you look at actual a turnover or revenue loss due to an open position, you can actually also build a hierarchy in the different and of roles. And the one thing I've always noticed in almost all TA departments, all roles are equal. But we know not all roles are equal. I mean, with all due respect, and I, I, I once worked at a university, a PhD is not equal to a full professor and should get a lot more attention and even probably a lot more marketing budget because there are so many less people who are able to fill the job because you actually have to be in a PhD before you become a postdoc, before you go through the entire professor track to become a full professor. So it's... You know, the cost per hire should be higher for those, but also the, the, the priority given. So if you're able to make those dollars of revenue loss due to uh, position open position days possibility, I just also think it's a really difficult metric to track because not all positions are revenue positions, although they do add to the revenue. I mean... TA professionals are one of those typical positions where it's really hard to measure the impact we're having, but we're damn sure are having a big impact if they're not there, which we noticed post-pandemic. Yeah, and, and, and to start with this, and I think also changing a little bit the perspective here is like when you work with venture capitalists, they are not interested when you hire somebody, but when they start, right? When are they starting to make an impact? And hiring date and start date is so so much difference. Um, that's one point. And the second point is, I think when we talk about, and one of the concepts that I love, for example, is when we measure impact, like not just measuring experience, but also the value add is think about employee lifetime value, right? And think about the concept when you say, if I'm creating a great candidate and onboarding experience and ramp up people faster than recruiters, for example, make their hires faster than they would normally do is an impact that you can measure in terms of return on investment on how good your experience is, no? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Totally agree, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what, what was the, the metric you took out of the article, uh, Matthias, which, which resonated with you best? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that I haven't thought about, but also came across recently uh, in a podcast that somebody has mentioned with sales employees, right? So I think uh, if you are going into normal SaaS business concepts, everything is literally connected. And then if you want to drive your growth and your revenue, when you look at the sales hires, if you enable people to you know, be ramped up faster and then they hit the quota earlier and then you put dollars behind it, that is pretty much measurable, right? And you have an impact there. And um, now if you want to you know, think about a global strategy where you want to open markets in a different place, when to do that, and what is the next step? And then also in a sales organization, how do you we talk about, I think we don't talk too much about org design, but we actually should talk about org design a little bit more. And then how do we help business leaders in that function? Are you starting with account execs first? And then when do you hire SDRs? What is the ratio behind it? These are things that I think where we become very tactical and strategic in our conversations and not just focus on this one hire per se. 
Yeah, no. So, so you're saying basically time to productivity should be in this list as well. I could not agree more. I've seen so much great stuff happening from great onboarding programs and not just in, in, for example, sales. I've actually recently came across a case study for warehouse employees where they, they had an onboarding app and they literally knew where everything in the warehouse was because of the game they designed in the onboarding app. And the funny thing was they weren't just productive faster. They also saw a much lower early attrition because all of a sudden people felt secure in their job because they, they knew what they were supposed to do. They understood all the abbreviations that were used within the company. They didn't feel the outsiders for the first three months, which is really interesting. Now, for me, one of the things that stood out, which is something I always uh, love talking about, is the new hire failure rate, which is, I think, one of the most important metrics we should be tracking. And I think we should be tracking it per hiring manager, to be honest, or at least per hiring department. But uh, the thing I disagree with is the way Dr. John Sullivan wrote it. He said, it's the people who are terminated or asked to leave in the first six to 12 months after they start. And I would actually say it's the people who leave within the first 12 months as well, also voluntarily, because let's be very honest, it's a mishire if you, and it might not be a mishire on the quality of the hire, but it sure as hell is a mishire on the company identity. And if a lot of people quit prematurely, you're probably hiring too good of people for not as uh, inspiring a job. Yeah, I totally agree. This is a great metric to to present. But here I'm a bit turned, like, is that responsibility or is this metric for TA or is it wider for hiring managers, for HR? Because if, if, uh, if somebody leaves in six to 12 months, how much is TA to blame? It should be a kind of a more joint ownership because, yeah, we have to start looking from the beginning, from what went wrong in the recruitment process, but also we one measuring this and bringing this to the table. We have to take into account all the onboarding, all the induction, everything that's been happening after the hire started as well and bringing it as a joint kind of one uh, figure because I think it's it's very easy to play RTA have brought the wrong person they hired somebody that they shouldn't have but there are lots of steps in between to take into account I don't think it's about is TA to blame but it's is there a problem and TA should at least try to take ownership of it and of course you can't be blamed for a decision you haven't made yet if you're able to show for example which i know at one of my previous clients we were able to show that one hiring manager basically needed three times as many applicants per hire uh, which is another metric they were talking about because he pissed off all of his hires in his interviews we were able to just go to his manager and say listen we need to get this guy on interview training or get him off doing interviews because he's pissing off all the candidates. Same goes for failure rates. As soon as you're able to show them like, okay, you have so many people leaving your department, but this department doesn't have this problem. Let's see what we can learn from them. Or in some cases, let's, I, know, I actually know one massive organization, the Belgium or the Flemish government, they now have what they call a selection unit. And because they had a lot of 
selection problems, basically. And, they, and, and also because of their diversity commitments, they said from now on, only the selection committee will decide on the candidates where the hiring manager is able to select from. So, and they will only pass through acceptable candidates. And then from that, so we shouldn't at some point have mishires and they're slowly getting there. But they've now decided that the pre-selection or up to the final selection should not be let be done by the hiring managers because there are too many mishires, which they, of course, got from data, like how many mishires do we actually have? How many people are asked to leave within the first year? How many actually leave within the first year? Shouldn't we make sure that we, at least everybody we hire, we think is a fit? But where do you draw the line that it's a mishire? When, like, that's what I'm struggling to to label. Is it a mishire after 12 months? Because it's not really at the hiring stage. So if I, I would agree, if somebody leaves in like in the first maybe one two months, then it's probably mishire. But everything longer than that, I wouldn't label it as mishire. It's more I don't know performance or uh, manager. Yeah, but, but not being aligned with your manager, I also consider to be a mishire. I mean, I agree with you that not everybody within leaving within 12 months is a mishire. But if you expected somebody to be there for a couple of years, if it's, uh, I mean, if I go in somewhere, I'm there usually for six months. So yeah, if, if you agree, this is a six month contract kind of thing, of course, it's not a mishire. But if you hire somebody on a permanent basis, expecting somebody to be there at least on this time, we, we have an average, uh, I think, in the Netherlands of three years or something, where your hire usually sits at your company um, and it leaves within 12 months. For me, that's a mishire. And I, I'm not saying it's a skills mishire. I'm not saying it's a, a company mishire. I'm not saying it's a, a, a management misfit. But somewhere there was something not fitting or else that person wouldn't have left in six months or in six months to a year. Matthias? Yeah, I think what Olga pointed out, and it's really important with the, with the culture, I mean, depending on the size of the organization, culture can change also very fast sometimes, right? And honestly, I think with the mishire, you know, you know, we know this concept that Netflix has, right? Or, or other organizations as well. Like, would I hire this person in, in, in a year again, right? And this might be... Uh, no, right? I think uh, with a Netflix approach where they said they're going to match offers. I don't know if you remember this, right? We say, hey, when you have a different offer and it's higher than than, than we offer, we're going to match this. But the interesting piece of it, if I remember it correctly, all of the people where Netflix did this, 80% of, this peop of those people were not there anymore. And nobody knows about this, right? Recruiters always be like, oh, they're matching offers. This is amazing. We should do the same. But really, how well did they turn out to be successful in this company? Not so much, honestly, right? So I think for us, it's really with the mishire concept, I agree, it needs to be in sync with the manager. But honestly, when we talk about quality per hire, be aware of the biases here again, right? Because one of the things that I strongly recommend, and a lot of people might not like this so much, is like, okay, we want to have data fast. So we survey the hiring manager after six or eight or 12 months, what, uh, 12 weeks, whatever, to get that data, but that's highly biased, right? We want to actually get the proper data with quality per hire when we get performance data and connected with the hiring data, because then we have a 
more objective assessment. Of course, you don't get that data fast and it takes you longer. But again, right, I think that's something that uh, we need to make sure when we talk about data and mishire or not, how objective are we and how many biases are involved? And another thing that I want to mention, Bas, is also, since you mentioned in the beginning, Olga is coming more from an enterprise environment, me even more from a startup or a scale-up organization. I think talent acquisition owns, depending on the size of the organization, different pieces, right? So I have the beauty to not take over employer branding and talent acquisition. I even go further with onboarding, yeah? Something that most of the talent acquisition people not have, right? So the more of a responsibility you get in maybe smaller organizations, the more impact you have on this employee lifetime value, where in bigger enterprise organizations, you maybe have a tiny piece, yeah? And that is something which we also need to put into context when we talk about how much can you actually influence in your KPI or metrics that you set up. No, I totally agree with you, but I think you should still be measuring it just, and it's not about blaming it. It's about being able to sit with, for example, HR on onboarding, if that's part of the HR, or I actually remember uh, the head of employer branding for Lidl, you know, the biggest uh, uh, supermarket chain in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, or one of the biggest ones in the world, actually. And their head of employer branding had an excellent relationship with their head of corporate branding, which is very unique, I found, in the corporate world. But they basically, they knew because their metrics intertwined that they needed to have a great relationship. And it was just, uh, I actually had him on, on he's actually the, one of our for co-hosts as well and uh, he told me at one of the the events he spoke at like well i'm one of the very few people who's able to get really famous people who are also in our commercials also in our employer brand video because i don't have to pay those famous people because i just take a few hours of of shooting time when they're in the studio anyway so having metrics with might which you do not completely influence but it's really good to have them and to go up to a senior management and say, listen, we need to work together on this. So are there any other metrics in you liked or were there any metrics in you were missing? Olga, what, what's the metric you've been most successful in influencing senior leadership within either PepsiCo or Nielsen? You're not there that long yet, but Yes, <laughs> no, uh, we did measure the projection of gaps in the workforce. So it's more like an HR analytics metric. We partner with this very sp specialized HR people, but I think this changed the game for us a lot. So by showing where we're going to have gaps in, let's say, two, three years, kind of le which levels, what position types, which functions, to then act on it now. And this was specifically for our graduate scheme. So we're saying, okay, we, sh we should be bringing these people, the lower levels now, develop them to then fill the gaps that we'll have. So This was really a game changer when you come to uh, a meeting and you actually bring the data projecting the future. Well, it obviously we all take into account COVID and everything else that happens in between. But this this was a big eye opener for the leadership to actually see, okay, I'm going to have a problem here. We need to act now to not get to the, to the situation that we have to hire uh, thousands of people uh, at the same time. I really love that. Matthias? Any any great metrics? I always start thinking when when I design KPIs to really say, you know, what are 
what is the value add? And the value add should be experience driven, right? Or like a culture add, yeah, in, in a sense of how can we influence the culture that we have or start certain developments there. So on the experience side, I would look at most of the people would jump in candidate experience, which I think is relevant. I think still it's so poor that our profession is not mastering this over that course of time because everybody talks about it, but nobody can actually deliver on it. And then when I think about experiences, I would not only like leave it with candidate experience, but I would also look at like, if I don't have a great recruiter experience, how can they deliver a great candidate experience? If I don't have a great hiring manager experience, how can they deliver a great candidate experience? So really start thinking a little bit bigger about this concept about experience and what can I do? Because if my, for example, recruiters are being treated badly in the business, how can they excite people to start the organization, right? On the other hand, I think we then even, as I said before, maybe start thinking about onboarding experience as well until you hand it over to employee experience and literally having MPS scores that could measure this and really impact that. I found this really meaningful and, and more important than maybe, oh, how fast can you hire or, you know, how many, uh, what is the conversion rate between one of those stages, right? Uh, on the other hand, with the cultural piece, I think what I sometimes got confronted with in my past jobs is like, we want to change culture. By changing culture, that means we want to be more diverse, a very common phenomenon that we hear all the time, right? So then really looking into what is the what are the, the gender or the, the, the ethnicity or other uh, DNI metrics that you have in order to say this is the staff level and this is actually the hiring plan. And how can we, with the hiring plan that we have, change the existing staff, right? And so from that ego, angle, you might be like, okay, hold on. With the hiring that we want to do, we cannot even move the needle. So we either invest more in hiring or we split it and go into promotion, right? So what we have seen over the course of time, for example, that we couldn't really move the needle in leadership diversity, but we found a lot of diverse seniors. So for us, it was very obvious that we hire those diverse seniors and then next year, we might promote them and in this way influence um, the diversity ratio in certain areas. And that is something that I think if we have this connected mindset, and this is just one example, I think this is what I think is really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think this is very close to what Olga was just talking about, like future gaps and looking at those. Two of the most strategic hiring uh, metrics or not not hiring, but hiring impacting metrics I've seen over the years. One of them was from uh, actually also a tech company, now an established brand, but they were able to measure why do people leave to the original employee acceptance or engagement surveys and they found that actually the number one reason why people left was the unhappiness with the travel time which basically did not correlate with the actual travel time it was just the unhappiness with the travel time which was really interesting but the funny thing there was that based on this decision, they were able to actually get sea level to rent a really expensive property next to Amsterdam Central Station because they were like, well, listen, recruitment costs will drop significantly if we move from this always in a traffic jam industrial area uh, near Amsterdam, which is which you have to go by car, which is a hellish, to... This is really good by train next to the central station. Yes, we'll pay twice as much for the same office space, but we'll actually make that back on hiring, which they did. 
which was really interesting. I think a really strategic measure like, okay, travel time is the main impact. We're not getting in the talent. And the other one, which I really loved, I just popped into my head a, uh, a couple of ages ago. This was a company which was using actual analytics on the linguistics of internal communications, which is a really interesting tool where basically every email you send to your colleague and every uh, Slack message could be analyzed within groups, not within an individual, but within groups on how engaged are you with the organization. And what they managed to do was uh, first they found out that engagement really dropped after two months. And then they said, okay, we need to extend our onboarding program and our buddy program to six months, I think, at first. And then they saw a drop at six months again. So they extended the buddy program to a year. And then they literally saw a drop at a year. And they saw people leaving after a year. And this was a family-run business. This was like a real... Most people were there like 20 years. There was actually the average tenure was 20, 25 years. So they found out that they needed to basically onboard somebody for almost two years before somebody was really completely accepted within the company. And they were able to measure this on both attrition rates, but also engagement rates, because they literally saw engagement rates drop on those internal linguistics. And then... Three months later, they saw attrition rates drop and they were able to measure this every time for a new hire. So they ended up extending their onboarding program basically to two years, which is like the longest onboarding program I've ever heard of. They were like, well, apparently, if you've got so many 20-year, 25-year-old tenures, it's really difficult to really feel accepted within this company. And it takes you two years of having a buddy, having a mentor, having one of those people who's been here just telling you, you know, you still need to go there. You need, Which I found really fascinating because I don't think this is something you see at many companies, but at this company, by actually measuring engagement at this level, they were able to literally also convince C-level like, we need to invest even more in our onboarding because basically we're everybody who's leaving our company was actually a recent hire. And for them, recent hires was less than two years. So we need to be more inclusive in actually being inclusive to people who haven't been here for decades, which was, I think, one of the most fascinating strategic hiring metrics I've ever seen. Anybody wants the last word before we close off? I think a super quick one, uh, because at the beginning, it says that the metrics we're using time to hire, time to feel, it's not, uh, we shouldn't be presenting. I think these metrics are also good, but they're just for a different purpose. I think we should, it's very important for recruiters to also see what's happening with their roles. It's just because lately I've seen a lot of articles like, oh, we don't need to report on that. There's no, but it's not strategic enough. It's it's good metrics and they should stay, but they should stay for recruiter recruiters' purposes, not to maybe show broader to the business. So that, that's what I was just going to clarify. <laughs> and I think I fully agree with you, or actually I know I fully agree with you. And I think Matthias uh, fully agrees with you as well. And we shouldn't not measure the uh, metrics which we've been doing, we should just also go beyond them and uh, understand what we should be reporting. And I think that's actually a great final note. Know what you're reporting to who, because not everybody is interested in your recruiting metrics. 
you might want to keep those internally, but you do want to measure them. But uh, not not only do strategic me metrics count, there's more to that. And on that note, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you like our show, give us a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get them. Subscribe to the show, and we'll be back next week. Music